Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormady, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 42 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I'm excited to welcome world-renowned astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, the Frederick P. Rose Director of the Hayden Planetarium at New York's American Museum of Natural History. The author of more than a dozen books, Tyson is the host of the acclaimed Star Talk podcast and hosted two seasons of Cosmos, televised by Fox and National Geographic. But today, among other things, we'll be discussing his latest book, written with George Mason University physicist James Treffel, titled Cosmic Queries, Star Talk's Guide to Who We Are, How We Got Here, and Where We're Going. Tyson joins us from New York City. Neil, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Well, thank, thanks for having me. Great to know that there's a podcast out there with a title such as that. <laughs> I, I kind of like it. Anyway, um, first off, congratulations on the new book. It's uh, very well designed, uh, written simply enough to clearly explain some of astronomy's most complex concepts, which is no small feat. So before we talk about the book, let's mention some breaking news. Well, just to be clear, that okay. design that you're noticing, yeah, sure. that's all National Geographic. They're the publishers, and, and you know, you give them content and then they turn it into a, a visual splendor <laughs> so so i just want to there's a whole set of uh, uh graphic designers and illustrators who participated in making that book a beautiful uh, object to behold in addition to the enlightenment that i it's my goal to infuse it with well they did a great job so uh before we talk about about some of the subjects in the book let's mention some breaking news about the interstellar object Oumuamua. Uh, as you know, Harvard astronomer Avi Loeb has championed the idea that Oumuamua is an alien probe. However, yesterday the American Geophysical Union released a statement saying that it's likely a piece of a Pluto-like planet from another solar system. According to two papers published in the journal Geophysical Research, planets. In fact, the authors note that it was likely knocked off the surface by an impact about half a billion years ago and thrown out of its parent system. Being made of frozen hydrogen also explains the unusual shape of Oumuamua. As the outer layers of nitrogen ice evaporated, the shape of the body would have become progressively more flattened. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're on the frontier of our understanding of the universe. Oumuamua was the very first object. About, we've been looking for decades. It was the very first object discovered that has unambiguous origins from beyond the solar system. And it's very actually an easy thing to determine once you establish its velocity and what direction it's moving. You can say, oh my gosh, this is not gravitationally attached to the sun. Whereas almost by definition, everything that is attached to the sun gravitationally, as we are, because we orbit it, for example, is part of our family. So this one came from outside the family. All right. And so that meant it could be something completely different from what we had experienced here within our own solar system. And it, it turns out it may, in fact, be the case that it is. The hypothesis that it could be a, some alien directive, um, the, the author of that paper, it even became a book, 
um, was not able to gain many uh, uh, supporters of his colleagues in, in, in support of that idea. My, uh, I, I was skeptical along with the rest of them. My main source of skepticism is, uh, well, let me back up for a moment. What led, what would lead anyone to possibly believe that aliens were directing it is that it was following a trajectory not entirely accountable by Newton's laws of gravity. So you look at what would the sun do to it and Jupiter and, and we know it's an interloper between the stars. Um, so you add up the gravity of everything that would be tugging on it and it should then have a trajectory through the solar system that you'd expect and it did not. So this is what's called anomalous acceleration. All right. So that's what triggered people to, maybe it's aliens, all right? This is a first thought that people have. Because if it was behaving exactly according to gravity, it's just, a, it's just a ballistic object moving through space. If it's doing something different, maybe somebody's controlling it. All right. So um, Avi Loeb, who's the proponent of, of the object being of extraterrestrial origin, took that and ran with it. And then a whole book came out of it. All right. My skepticism is, if aliens are in control of something, the acceleration would be more interesting than what it actually exhibited. There was a constant anomalous acceleration on it, okay? So, it, so, so the, its movement through space was very smooth in response to that constant anomalous acceleration. Whereas if you're in control of a spacecraft, you might oh, here's a solar system. Let me hang out here for a bit. Let me take a look at Earth. Let me go around the sun for a bit. Let me check out Saturn's rings and then move on. If you saw the thing doing that, oh my gosh, then there's <laughs> no accounting for it by anything we can even dream up. Whereas a constant anomalous acceleration is just outgassing at one part of relative to another part of the object. Comets do that all the time. No one complains when a comet doesn't follow Newton's laws because we know about the, the, the surface activity that takes place as the thing nears the sun and moves away from the sun. So in science, you really then have to ask, how quick are you to assert an extraordinary explanation for something? Or will you look a little more closely at it as they did with the two papers um, uh, in the Geophysical Union uh, Journal? And what do you think about the idea that it's a, a piece of a Pluto? Oh, it could be. The, the point is it's really cold and, and it's got materials not common in a comet. See, that's what threw us off, all right? Uh, you know, could it be the anomalous accelerations that comets experience? Well, this one isn't showing any fuzz, any sort of tail the way comets do. So, no, it can't be that. Well, again, it's from a whole other solar system with, and something else happened that we'd never seen before. And that's the beauty of being on the frontier of science. You're kind of stuck there saying, gee, I wonder what this is. Am I even asking the right question? You don't even know that. So, sure, I don't have a problem with that. That said, do you agree uh, with Loeb that our solar system is likely being visited by alien probes? Or I, I don't see enough evidence to support that claim. Okay. Or rather, I don't see evidence that would convince an authentically, scientifically skeptical person of that. Because that would be extraordinary if that were true. So I kind of would be looking for really good evidence for it. And nothing that, in the, so the skeptical scientific community, scientist community would put forth 
what would rank as convincing evidence uh, has been put forth on that. And do you, you look at all the UFO chasers and they talk about, well, here's a credible witness. You know, it's not in science, it's not even about a witness. It's about the data. And if your best data is a lights in the sky that you can't explain, then we should keep working at it. You know, get better data, better images, sharper images. Um, get, you say the thing crash landed, you know, bring it into town square. I mean, there, it would be really easy to demonstrate that we've been visited, to demonstrate to a skeptic. And by the way, the people who are real fans of it, I, I'm not going to stop them. Let them keep trying. I'd love the day that they can snare an alien. I want to meet the alien. I'm just not convinced <laughs> enough to devote my own time to investigate it. But they all take offense at that, and I'm surprised. Because my opinion shouldn't matter to them if they're really committed to getting better and better evidence for it. They just think that credible witnesses, and what they, what they define as credible is, is, well, this is a captain in the Navy or a colonel in the this or the that. And okay, um, but they're still human and they're still susceptible. Uh, the, the greatest advances of, in science in the last 400 years specifically occurred when we found ways to replace human senses with apparatus that is not subject to the, it's not subject to the, the whims and the error-prone elements of the human sensory system. Let's switch gears a bit. What about uh, NASA's Artemis mission to the moon? Uh, do you think that will, they will meet the 2024 deadline? Yeah, I think I don't mind ambitious deadlines, um, even if I think deep down that they're unrealistic. I don't mind that because maybe they'll succeed. Maybe the urgency of it will trigger other innovations that will benefit life and society. So, yeah, I think 2024 is ambitious. If you ask me what would be more realistic, I, I couldn't tell you. But it's good to have a goal out there regardless. And so I applaud the fact that there's still people thinking large, uh, not only on Earth, but uh, on <laughs> locations beyond. Well, one of those people is Elon Musk, and he continues to think large. I just reviewed his book, uh, Liftoff, about the beginning of SpaceX and came away with the idea that Musk is very singular in his focus to get humanity off world and colonize Mars. However, some hold that Musk's focus on moving off-world to Mars to save humans the fate of the dinosaurs will actually work against efforts to deal with climate change and environmental problems here on Earth. Do you share their views? No, uh, I, I don't. I think it's, uh, first, <laughs> uh, in a free society, he can do what he wants. So to, uh, with his money that he earned, okay? So to say... You shouldn't do that. You should do something else. Well, why don't you make the money and you do it? Okay. <laughs> yeah. If you if you're going to require that he do what you want him to do, then it's not a free country. That's a different country. All right. That's not the one we at least tell ourselves we live in as citizens of the United States. That's my first comment. Second, uh, I think what's behind the concern is the idea that if you have a this backup plan for Earth and we all move to Mars, that will reduce the effort to fix the problems on Earth. You're already accepting that Earth is going to be unlivable. That's fait accompli, and so now you're working on some other way to deal with it rather than to solve the problem. I think that's the, 
as I understand it, that's the, the core of people's concerns when expressed about uh, turning Mars into a destination. Here's my, I'm a, I tend to be a, a, a practical kind of guy and realist, I, rather I should say. So as opposed to an optimist or a pessimist, I think I'm just simply a realist. So here it is. Um, if you put humans on more than one planet and some catastrophe happens to one of those two planets, be it a virus or an asteroid or, or climate blight, then the species survives because you put your species in more than one place. All right? That's a noble cause. Uh, Carl Sagan spoke at length and characteristically eloquently about that. Where I part ways is the idea that, well, Mars is, in, is, is completely hostile to human physiology. The temperature, the air... Con uh, composition, the, the, the gravity, the everything there. So you have to build some kind of habitat module to put people in, all right? Or just terraform the planet. All right, so watch. Terraforming would be like the only real solution if you're going to be a completely two-planet species. And terraforming, my favorite word of the last several decades, turning Mars into Earth, seeding the atmosphere, the microbes that generate oxygen, this sort of thing. But a lot right. of people see uh, Mars as, you know, a scientific nature I'll preserve. Get there. That's a separate issue. Okay. We can talk about that. But that's, that's not relevant to what I'm saying at this moment. Okay? Uh, by the way, if you need Mars to survive, no one's going to give a rat's ass whether it ha once <laughs> had microbes. Okay? So what a luxury it is to want to protect what might have been the early biota of Mars because we don't have to go to Mars to survive. Okay? So we, that's a separate thing. I'd be happy to to comment on. But my point is, if it seems to me that whatever effort we would have to invest to, one, terraform Mars, two, then ship a billion people there, let's say 10% of the Earth's population, all right, whatever effort that is, that seems like a bigger effort than deflecting an asteroid or developing some perfectly antiviral serum or fixing the climate problem on Earth. Because if you have the power of geoengineering to turn Mars into Earth, then you have the power to turn Earth into Earth. So all of the talk about using Mars as a backup plan don't seem to be as realistic to me as putting in protections here on Earth in terms of cost, time, uh, what's what's realistic about the plan versus the Mars plan. So that's where I am on this. I just don't think it will happen because it's not realistic. Not because I don't want it to happen. I'd, be, I'd love to be a multi-planet species. But the, my goal to do that is because that would be an interesting thing to do, not so that we can protect the species. And what would you do if we managed to colonize Mars and an asteroid were headed for either Mars or the Earth and there was nothing you can do about it. You would say, oh my gosh, too bad. Okay, goodbye, five billion people. Is that really how you're going to do this? Really? And the other question. you and got the to Mars and yeah. you can't deflect an asteroid? I, so I, I don't, the practicality of it, I don't see manifesting. And the other question is, you know, even if you become a two-planet species and Mars is your second planet, your go-to planet, how do you sustain yourself without, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, shipments from 
Earth every two years. No, no, no. If Mars is terraformed. Uh, if it's terraformed, yeah, if it's terraformed. But we're a long, we're a long yeah. way there. But um, uh, Elon Musk is not talking about terraforming in the short term. He's just talking about... Well, because uh, he doesn't know how to in the short term. And uh, in, in the short term, yeah, you can set up um, sort of colonies and things. Yeah, you can have supply chains. That's what we have now. How does food end up at your local quick mart? All right? You didn't go milk the cow yourself. Somebody delivered the food for you to then acquire. So if there's a marketplace for it, you set up a supply chain, supply ships. So what? That's that's easy. We already we we do that on Earth. So I, I don't see what the concern is there. So what about the but the scientific value of Mars? I mean, if we find life, if we find evidence of past life on Mars, if the Perseverer rover takes samples, which are then subsequently sent back here to Earth and in the lab in a controlled environment, we determine that. You know, Mars did have past life. Uh, does that mean that uh, the Mars, that the life on on Mars started on Earth, or vice versa? Yeah, well, you'd have to study that what that life looks like, and you would be able to determine the answer to that question in a proper lab experiment. So, <clears throat> let's say it has DNA, but no DNA in common with any life on Earth. That would be interesting. That would hint towards, or strongly suggest that maybe DNA is an inevitable consequence of complex biochemistry. So that life, wherever you find it in the universe, would have identity encoded that way. But what if it had no DNA? I'm getting there. Okay. So now suppose there, suppose it has DNA and it has strands, early strands in common with what we have here on Earth. That would strongly hint to life having started on Mars and then planet hopping here to Earth which we now know can and does happen. You can thrust uh, rocks, surface rocks, into escape velocity, and they wander through space and land in another place with possible microbes stowing away in the nooks and crannies of the rock. So that would be interesting. It would mean we're all Martian descendants. If it's life that we can identify as life and has no DNA, that highlights a whole other way of being alive that would completely transform modern biology. So, now, you're worried that if that's the case, by the way, if it's all fossilized and it's all dead, then we wouldn't be contaminating a biosphere by moving full speed to, to Mars. But if you find any chance of there being life there now, then you'd want to step lightly. And NASA has precautions. It's called planetary protection, where you want to protect planets forward protect planets where you might be visiting if those planets might have life of their own and you want to backwards protect earth from anything you might be bringing from those planets so that earth is not contaminated by any microbes that were thriving there so whatever elon's um, plans are they would need to take into account this planetary protection um, schedule that that nasa has put together but, but nasa has a whole department of planetary protection that that's what they think about and that's what they care about and in the event that we found a biota uh, even fossilized that did seem to have formed independently on mars that must mean that what uh, life is pretty ubiquitous in the cosmos yeah if if you find life on an adjacent planet orbiting the sun to earth you know I, i'm i'm betting that there's life practically everywhere I know it's a big stretch, 
you take one discovery and make it millions, but you know, the sun is not uncommon as a type of star. We know planets are not uncommon. We know this. So, and we know the ingredients for life are the most common in the universe. So it just, it opens the floodgates of imagination for all the possible ways of being alive that might, that nature might have found out there beyond whatever happened here on earth. You mean if there wasn't some sort of panspermia between earth and Mars or vice versa, if it did start independently, correct? Well, that's how you began the question. Yeah. yeah, Mars had life independently. If they're related to us, then that opens up the panspermia concept. And there are some ideas about panspermia from star system to star system. Um, there've been talk, there's been talk about that. So, and I think one of these Star Trek incarnations accounted for why all the aliens have two arms, two legs, a head, nose, mouth, torso. Um, they, there was an episode and I forgot the exact details, but they were describing that there was this panspermic event across the galaxy. And then, so the basic architecture of life is the same everywhere. But it might be that even without panspermia. That would just, that's an, a, an interesting unsolved question at the moment. While we're on this topic, let me jump ahead a bit and just ask you, you mentioned this in your book about the possibility that uh, when we ventured back to Titan, because the Huygens probe, the ESA's Huygens probe did land on Titan and sent back data, but it didn't do any astrobiology. So, uh, so what are the chances do you think that some sort of microbial life could operate at extremely cold temperatures, as you write, a chilly minus 300 on Titan? And you write that these temperatures would mean that any metabolic processes that takes organisms on Earth a minute to complete would require a couple of months on Titan. So this would leave open the question if at such low temperature, a life form that would require months or years to draw a breath would even be recognizable as being alive. Or or would we just mistake it for a piece of uh, ice? Yeah, a piece of inanimate, an inanimate object. An inanimate object. If you, yeah. If you, so what are your thoughts? What is animate? It means you move according to the time frames of what you count as as animated, right? So it wasn't until the 1940s, but really till the 1950s, that anyone even believed that the continents moved. The continents were inanimate objects, all right? Well, because they move really slowly. And how, how, how quickly do they move? About the rate your fingernails grow, all right? That's pretty slow for a continent. Right. But they do move, and it comes with consequences. So, so, yeah, so we pose that question in the book because the book is not simply cosmic queries. It's not driven by answers that we have. It's driven by questions we want to ask. And not all questions that we have asked have tidy answers. Some are messy and some are still out in the philosophical zone. And still other questions, we don't even know if they're the right questions to ask in the first place. If you had to name two or three things that you think are holding us back when traveling beyond the moon or into interplanetary spaces, sending human crews, sending human astronauts either to mine an asteroid or survey an asteroid or or to the do, even do just the footprints uh, on on Mars, uh, flag and footprints mission. Uh, what would they be? Well, listen, I don't think of it that way. You know, if you go back sixty years, people would say, "Oh, will we ever get to the moon? Oh, it's so distant. It's so we don't know. Is it possible?" 
And, you know, the moment the Apollo program kicked in, everything was possible. You know, that's what led to the now dated expression. Uh, it was, uh, if we can put a man on the moon, why can't we solve poverty, right? right that that right. sort of thing. Yep, yep. So that kind of talk made it clear that, no, there is no goal in space that we think is outside of our reach. It's just a matter of money, politics, and 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 motivation. So those are different reasons from saying, oh, we'll never get to the moon because it's technologically hard or impossible. No, no one is saying that about going to Mars or to the moon or to mine an asteroid. We've been to asteroids. There, there've been, we, the species, has been to asteroids. Multiple countries, in fact. So that, none of that's a holdup. It's just, is there, does it cost so much that to go there for pure exploration will not be justified by any budget-controlling legislature? That's one fact. Another one is, is there an economic return? Because those things tend to drive themselves. Or is there strategic value to it? Another thing that drives itself. Does anyone feel threatened and they have to go take over an asteroid to protect their security? People make all manner of decisions when they feel threatened. And when they're making those decisions, money flows like rivers. So, no, there's nothing technological in the way. It's, it's what is the return on the investment? Right now it's negative. And that's what, why I think the ambitious timetables are not uh, realistic. And right now, there's not entirely a military threat. But I can tell you this, if China wanted to put military bases on Mars, they didn't, wouldn't even have to want to do that for real. They could just leak a fake memo saying it. We'll mobilize. <laughs> yeah. We'll have astronauts on Mars in 10 months. <laughs> so, but so what about the uh, human factor, psychological problems, uh, psychological risks of long duration space flight uh, when you're crossing the void and you and you see earth as a tiny little dot and uh you know radiation issues that sort of thing we don't really well, have well, ready uh, answers. you're talking about travel within the solar system so yeah, yeah our rockets are now powerful enough so that you can get any place interesting within your lifetime all right maybe not pluto but certainly out to Jupiter and its moons. Well, let's just say and, going to Mars. I mean, just getting to Mars. I mean, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, so I used to, I saw these early episodes of the Twilight Zone that studied what my, the impact, the psychological impacts of loneliness in space. They were doing these experiments. Twilight Zone began in 1959. So space was just being born at the time. And so there are a lot of unsolved subjects to be explored. And so they talked about the loneliness in space. Uh, people can go crazy. And then I thought about it and I said, I know plenty of people who would be delighted to spend eight months alone with a book and a Netflix account and maybe, you know, <laughs> some music. They don't need to talk to anybody. And the fact that they're not talking to anybody does not turn them crazy. And they delight in this. Once I started meeting people like that, I said, this, is, this, this whole thing is not a, it's not a thing. Not only that... As any astronaut will tell you, NASA is just yapping away at you every day. Time to wake up. Okay, here's here's your morning schedule. Here's the, <laughs> so it's, so how alone are you? Uh, they can even uh, NASA can even provide the the greatest hits for you, the top forty uh, while you're awake. Ex exactly, exactly. And I I was honored to be selected on a couple of occasions to be a sort of email buddy for some people who are on the space station. So that they can, you know, have some connection back to Earth. 
Uh, and so NASA is thinking about that need, but I'm, I, I think the concern may have been over-scripted, over, uh, I think people may have overreacted to how bad they thought it was going to get. So nine months plus, are you sending an astronaut alone? Of course not. In those early Twilight Zone episodes, it was a lone astronaut on a lone ship, right? Now, if you've got Elon's basically designing a bus to go to <laughs> whatever that is, a minivan. How many, is it six astronauts, eight astronauts? Right. So, yeah, I'm, so we'll see. But I don't see those as problems. And radiation, that's an engineering problem. I'm not worried about it at all. Okay. Let me just touch on briefly. In your book, you you write about the fact that the for the first two and a half billion years of our existence or Earth's existence, it was essentially a a planet uh, coated with blue green photosynthetic gunk along whatever shorelines existed at the time. However, some 550 million years ago, glaciers retreated, oxygen levels rose, and uh, if, if that event ha- these events hadn't happened. You write that the uh, the green pond scum might have continued unabated to this day, never leading to intelligent life. Thus, uh, how special or any do- kind of complex life that we know and love. Right. Correct. So, so how do you how how special do you think Earth is? Well, there's a whole exercise you can um, go through. It's, it's kind of fun, you know, at a bar. But when I'm not in a bar, I don't really take these conversations seriously. But it's like this. Suppose one thing changed in your life. Like, suppose your mother missed the bus on which she first met your father, and then they never met, then you would never be born. Right? You know, you, you can talk about the contingencies of everything in the world and how different things would be. You can do that, but I would ask, uh, of what value is it? All right? No, you're right, you wouldn't be born, but someone else would be born. All right, they meet two other people. And so, so I, I wouldn't be having this conversation with you. I'd be having this conversation with someone else, wondering how different the world would be if they weren't here, right? So, so you can step back a few, take a few steps back and look at the world statistically. Would there still be life, okay? Is there some other way vertebrate life could have come out instead of the way that it actually did? It's, it's lazy to say that's the only way it could have happened and therefore we're special. Think of other ways it could have happened. For example, you could look at human sight. And you could say, oh my gosh, look, there's a lens, there's a retina that forms an image and it's in color and it's connected to your brain. And it had to turn out just so in order to be that. What are the chances of that? And then you realize sight is kind of important for survival. And it has independently evolved at least five times in nature. Five completely different ways of seeing has evolved in nature. So if you didn't know that, you would think there was something uniquely special about your eyes. If we were flies, we might be saying, we have special because we have fly eyes. Oh my gosh, these are special. An octopus eye is actually different from the vertebrate eye, for example. Completely evolved under different forces. So to talk about the one thing that happened that made everything possible and then want to believe you're special because of it, is the, an extreme act of hubris. You write, while you're, while you're on the issue of sight, you write in your book that uh, there's no reason to think that space aliens would have the same array of senses, sight, hearing, taste, touch, smell as humans. They could have more senses than we do, 
or all their senses could be completely different from ours. If they were completely different, have you thought about how they might be different? Well, so, so uh, of course, we're, we're limited by not only what we know at any given time, but also the extent of our imagination. But I can tell you this, there are plenty of things in your environment that your five senses are oblivious to. You don't see ultraviolet light or x-rays or gamma rays or microwaves. Uh, if you saw microwaves, then microwave cell phone towers would be the brightest thing on the horizon, and they're not. The lights turn out, you don't even know the tower is there. There's stuff going on around you that transcend our senses. If you walk into an area where there's a strong magnetic field, you have no idea it's there. You don't have magnetic field sensors. You don't have, so there are a lot of things that scientific tools have demonstrated thrive in our environment that you have no idea there. So you need methods and tools and tactics to measure them. So sticking with what we know, we might imagine aliens that fully detect magnetic fields and exploit them for their own survival in some way. Uh, aliens that can see microwaves, radio waves. Geordi on Star Trek Next Generation could see the entire electromagnetic spectrum with the, the, the visor that he wore. And visor itself is an acronym, but I just don't remember what it stands for. Um, so, so, and he's uh, not human. I don't think he was human in that show. So he, in a way, has senses that we don't, and he was highly valuable for interpreting what's going on outside the ship. So the senses that they might have could be senses that our scientific instruments can detect, but we cannot physiologically, or they could be something completely different. So uh, if you had to give an educated guess as to where the nearest intelligent life might be to us, the extraterrestrial intelligent life, how far do you think it might be? Uh, intelligence is a whole other thing than when you're just simply talking about life. So I guess humans are intelligent, but let's ask the question, who defined humans as intelligent? Humans did. <laughs> That's our hubris once again. Would aliens rate us as intelligent? What do we look like to them? Could they be so intelligent that we are to them what mice are to us or worms are to us? Could their simplest expressed sentence be completely beyond our capacity to understand? Right? You can take a chimpanzee, which has damn near identical DNA to humans, and utter the following sentence, right, in front of the chimpanzee, but to your friend. You say, all right, I want to get on a plane. I'm going to land tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. I'll get a Starbucks latte. I'll call you at 10 o'clock, and you'll give me the address for the meeting that we're about to have downtown. Okay. That's a pretty, it's a, it's a busy sentence, but there's nothing particularly complex in it. There's nothing about that sentence that could be understood by the chimp. What is 10 o'clock? What is an airplane? What is a latte? What is that? You know, what, what is a meeting? What is it? They have no idea. That's my simplest sentence. So imagine eavesdropping on really intelligent aliens and they utter the simplest sentences between them and you have no idea what they're talking about at all. The concepts are beyond your reach. So I'm not so quick to say that we're intelligent. Let's find somebody else just like us. So that's my first. Second, Intelligence is extremely rare in the tree of life. We're ascribing it to this narrow branch of mammals that pulls off of a branch of vertebrates. And something could have broken that branch early on, rendering 
mammals extinct, we'd have a whole world of thriving life with no mammals and no one to declare themselves intelligent. All right, so again, one of the contingencies of the world, or maybe another branch would have opened up that could have had animals far more intelligent than the mammal branch that we have come to know and love. Any of that is possible. Nature is quite inventive with all the ways of being alive it's come up with. So um, all I'm saying is that if intelligence were important, we would have seen it much more often in the tree of life and we don't. So that tells me that if the galaxy is teeming with life, probably intelligent life would be rare. Given the, the rarity of what we call intelligence in the tree of life on Earth, because clearly it's not important for survival, if most life on Earth we would not count as intelligent, yet it coexists with us, right? If Earth is any metric of this, then you might expect intelligent life to be extremely rare, just as it is extremely rare in the tree of life on Earth. But there are people, marine biologists, who argue that cetaceans uh, show uh, in similar human-like intelligence. Uh, uh, the orca whale, the whales, uh, uh, the, the whales, the dolphins, um, the porpoises. And, uh, and then... Well, no, I'm saying even that mammal, they're all mammals? They're all mammals. Even that mammal branch is a tiny, narrow slice of the entire tree of life. That's all I'm saying. If intelligence were really important, it would be all over the tree of life. Mushrooms would be intelligent. Oak trees would be intelligent. But they're not by any measure of intelligence that we have invoked. Therefore, if Earth is a metric for what to expect on other planets, you'd expect most of the life to not have any intelligence at all and possibly uh, most of the life forms to not be intelligent and possibly not even have branches that ever became intelligent. The, the uh, If we do talk about the octopus has an extraordinary brain. It's, it's independently controlling eight limbs. And so I think we undervalue the intelligence that lurks within creatures that are not mammals. But even so, most life on Earth wouldn't classify as that. Right. And uh, actually, paleontologist Peter Ward at the University of Washington argues that, you know, argues that crows have a, a form of intelligence. They, they use tools. And then also the... Uh, African parrot would might have evolved uh, human-like intelligence because it has the uh, opposable thumbs. I mean, it can it can manipulate because they grab things. That's yeah. right. Yeah, but uh, I'm, I'm all in on that. I'm just saying it's still. I hear you. I hear you. I'm just saying it's still small. Okay. And relative to all the life that has ever existed on Earth. But let me get to if Earth uh, is our template. We're going to lose. Okay, so before we close, let's talk a bit about your master class, if you don't mind. I don't want to give away the shop, but I was intrigued by the synergy between the scientific process and the application of strategic thinking uh, that your master class offers to our daily day-to-day lives. Is that what you were outlining in this course? Yeah, thanks for noticing that. Um, you would glean that, I guess, even just from the trailer for it, the two-minute um, front-end um, marketing bit for it. So what I tried to do there was communicate to the masterclass viewer what is going on before I ever utter anything. So what's what's going on under the hood? And the point of the masterclasses is to get a, a bit of exposure to the life experience and the, and the uh, things you wouldn't necessarily find in a book of people who have worked long and hard at their trade 
So screenwriters and comedians and actors and performers. And in my case, I'm a scientist who communicates. And this was an occasion for me to share that. So uh, I, there's a crazy amount of energy I invest in thinking about how someone else is thinking. And so I, and I gauge that based on what questions they ask, what words they use, what ideas they bring forth. And I say, okay, this is a, I get a sense of the architecture of their brain wiring. Then when I come up with an idea that I want to share, a discovery, a concept, a, a cool fact, I then shape it to best be received by that particular brain wiring. So let me not think of it as brain wiring, just receptors. What are your receptors for learning? And maybe school, you didn't like school. All right, so that's a different set of receptors I want to address. And the act of doing so, the act of communicating, is, I think, really important in modern times because there are many people who, who stopped wanting to learn something new or rather they're kind of ossified in what they think is true. And how do you get through to those people? You know, the people who are certain that scientists don't know what the hell they're doing and they'll just get all their insights from internet chat pages. How do, what led to somebody thinking that way? about how they would gain access to what is objectively true in the world. And that got me thinking about school systems and how is science taught? Is it taught as a satchel of facts? Or is it taught as a means of inquiring about what is objectively true in the world? So the master class is a full exploration on all the ways your thinking can go astray, the bias that can contaminate your, your rational thinking. And so... Yeah, it's a celebration of rational thought. And it's fundamental to what it is to be a scientist. And I was delighted to be able to share, share the love of that with so, those who, who are interested. So what do you, uh, how do you respond to people who say they have no interest in astronomy or no interest in space? I, I don't, in a free country, that's fine. What I would, t <laughs> what I would ask them is, are, is that opinion fully informed? Right? So you don't have any interest in space. Oh, so I take away your direct TV. Oh, and your... GPS satellites. You can't use Tinder anymore. Okay, you can't use uh, the the Google Maps. All these use space assets. So if you really don't like space, I don't have a problem with that in a free society. But make sure you know, make sure you've done your homework before you express that opinion. And uh, so I I joke about sneaking in in the dark of night and removing everything from your home that uh, is enabled or was originally conceived as a space asset and what kind of life you would lead when you wake up the next morning. Um, you would feel like you were back in the caves. So, so then once I tell you that, then I, if you want to still not like space, I'm not going to hit you over the head. We live in a free country. You should have any opinion you want. So finally, uh, when you look up at a clear night sky, what goes through your head? Oh, I, I have a side longing to be abducted by aliens. I want a beam of light to come down and take me to their planet. That would just be so cool. Are you uh, But otherwise, I just look up at the immensity of it. And usually I say, gee, I wish I had a telescope with me right now or a good pair of binoculars. And, uh, but otherwise, I can still star hop and get my way around a night sky. I started life as an amateur astronomer, and they, as a community, are experts in the night sky. So uh, I just like sitting out in the silent... Um, canopy under the silent canopy 
So, Neil, uh, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media or via email if they want to learn more? Yeah, I think contact might overstate that. They can, <laughs> I can you, I, because I don't actually, there are too many followers that have a meaningful conversation with people. Occasionally I'll pop back with a response, but you shouldn't expect that. That's just if time and circumstance enable it and empower it. But I'm on Twitter at Neil Tyson, N-E-I-L-T-Y-S-O-N. And uh, Facebook and and Instagram and TikTok, it's all the full moniker, Neil deGrasse Tyson. I'm very findable there, and I'm active on all those media, but I would say my, my most active among them is, is Twitter. As always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Neil deGrasse Tyson, thanks so much for helping us better understand our cosmos. Excellent. Happy to be a servant in that cause. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at bdormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM. <laughs>